Listener Production. Welcome back to episode 186 of the Howie Games, part B, featuring a man you can hear on SBS as he dominates their fantastic cycling coverage. So good on the Tour de France. His name, of course, is Matt Keenan. Before we get to becoming the main man, I'm fascinated by... I've learned a few things about preparation, what works for me, what doesn't. Um, And Tommy's printed out a document you you kindly sent him, which has blown my mind. So before I get into the weeds of the document, so let's base this around a tour um, on SBS, Mm. Tour de France. So you said how many, what did you say, 160? 176. Okay, 176 riders. Before we get into the specifics of it, how much preparation, and it's an unfair question because you'll be developing it as you go, but how much preparation goes in in the lead up to having enough information for the Tour de France to talk about 176? So people think 176 different riders, how much work are we talking? And do you enjoy it or do you hate it? Love it. And it's a six-month build. A so, six-month build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, so Tour of Oman, which is early in the season, for example, you're all in the same hotel. Or the Tour of Qatar, you're all in the same hotel. So at that point, I'm in with a chance to talk to the riders at breakfast and at dinner because the buffet and they're low-stress races. And you can talk to the team managers. You can talk to the mechanics. The mechanics give you great information because they don't have the Colour stuff that you can't read on exactly. Wikipedia. So Got one it. of the things I did when I was commentating on my own is I put three dot points on the screen. Add V to the pictures, one point at a time, light and shade. So that, That's your mantra. That's my mantra. And the add value to the pictures is tell people something that they can't find on the internet. So you get that by having conversations with people and talking to them. So you've got to have something to say about every single rider at the Tour de France. And how are you physically uh, taking this information down? What are you putting Jotting it in? Jotting notes on the computer. Right. Yeah, and then building a start list. Building it, so, and that, that's what this is? This Is this a start list? Yeah, so there'll be something there with a really quick reference to say about every single rider in the race. So anybody can end up in the breakaway and you've got to have something to say about everyone that is in the race. And it's all sort of abbreviations. Okay, so let, let's give, let's give run us. through this. So let's go with... Um, what team we got? The crew from Jumbo Visma. Jumbo Visma. Okay, Big Jumbo. Dustin. Yeah. Okay, so Stephen... <laughs> Stephen D. Kreuzweig. Stephen Kreuzweig, 32, I presume that's his age. That's his age. 178 slash 66. So 178 centimetres, 66 kilograms. GC Arctic Race 14. He won the, the Arctic Race in 2014. Was it cold? It was beautiful. <laughs> it's in Norway. St. Swiss 11 in brackets, only two wins? Yeah, so stage, ST is for stage. Oh, he won a stage in the Tour of Swiss in right. 2011. He's only won two races. Eighth Giro. He finished eighth overall in the Giro d'Italia. Seventh Giro oh, in 11. In, in seventh in the Giro in 15. Fourth in the Vuelta, so the Tour yep. of Spain, 18. Fifth in the Tour de France, 18. In brackets, attack Alpe d'Huez. Yeah, so he went on this long-range attack on the stage to Alpe d'Huez, and he got <laughs> caught near the bottom of the climb. DNF in the Dauphine, 19. Bug. Yeah, so that was the key lead-up race, <laughs> is the Dauphiné, and he didn't finish oh, because sorry, the he was sick. Yeah. Okay. So, so you have... Something like that on every single... On and every info about, single rider. Yeah. What happened to number 86, Tony Martin, ST, stage four, 15, Pav, on Trenton's bike? Yeah, okay. So in stage – so that's – that was <laughs> You're a stage – You're a lunatic, mate. That, that was – so Tony Martin, he's a four-time time trial world champion. Yes. Um, 
He won the stage across the cobblestones in 2015 and he swapped bikes with one of his teammates. Matteo Trenton gave him his bike because Tony Martin had crashed and Tony Martin got the yellow jersey and two days later, Tony Martin crashed and broke his collarbone. He finished the stage with the yellow jersey, but he had a broken collarbone and couldn't start the next day. And his teammates in an bar won that stage when Tony Martin had broken his collarbone. See, now you're understanding the depth of knowledge and all seriousness required to do your sport. So, a pop quiz, what unfortunately happened oh, no. to... Uh, Rider 176 from the Total Direct Energy team. This is an obscure team, by the way. Okay. Rain. Rain Taramay. Taramay. Something unfortunately happened to him in the Tour de France of 2011. Oh. So Rain Taramay's from Estonia. Right. Yes, he is. Yeah. He was. He previously rode with Kafidis. Oh, he got hit by his own team car. He did. <laughs> That's... He did, unfortunately. And he was, on, he was on target for the white jersey right. too. Right. He got hit. Yeah. So this is, uh, I'm. But the bigger challenge, Howie, is yeah. rider ID. Well, I, I want to get to that. Okay. Before we get to rider ID. So it, it, it's enjoyable for you? Yeah. Okay. So you, you enjoy the, the six-month work to, to get all this information yeah. here? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So then when. As you mentioned, the great skill, you've got a, a breakaway, a guy coming on and off for two hours. You've got basically two lines about him. Yeah. So then do you just combine with your expert and your general knowledge just to – like how do you flesh it out for two hours when nothing's happening? Okay. Well, let's uh, let's pick one. Okay. Uh, actually, you, you pick a team okay. and one of the riders lower down the list – Righto, so he won't go. He's in the breakaway and he's okay. on his own. A movie star. Yep, who we got? My man, Nelson Oliveira. Yeah, okay, so he's from Portugal. He's, he's been a multiple Portuguese national time trial champion. Yep. Who was the team leader that year? Was it Narol Quintana? Quintana, the famous one. Okay, so we've got we've got Nelson Oliveira in the breakaway. Yep. So there, I'm talking about Nelson's results and the fact he's a really strong time trial, so that makes him a dangerous guy to be in the breakaway. And here are some of the results that he's had at world championship level. Um, you know, for Portugal, they're you know really famous, obviously, for their football, but they do love their cycling. Rui Costa, who was the world champion in 2013, he's Portuguese. He won athlete of the year in Portugal ahead of Cristiano Ronaldo a couple of times. So you've got a few things to talk about given the fact that this guy, Nelson Oliveira, is from Portugal. And you talk about the last time that a rider from Portugal at this point had reached the podium in the Tour de France was in 1979, and that was Joaquim Agostino. So you can talk about some of those historical things within Portugal. What about Portugal. your recall? You've okay. gone back to 79 and Joaquim Agostino. So then also, but why is he in the breakaway? So you've got to add value to the, why is he in the breakaway? Yep. Well, he's in the breakaway because that takes pressure off the rest of the guys that are there to support Nato Quintana. This means that nobody else from Movistar is going to have to put their nose in the wind. It's other teams they're going to have to chase. So the rest of the Movistar guys, they get around Nato Quintana and make sure that he is well protected. So it's when we get down to the back end of the stage, Quintana is fresher and he's going to have an extra teammate for support potentially because none of his other mates have had to do any work. They've been sitting in the peloton and Quintana's rivals have been the one doing the chasing. It's a phenomenal description of what's involved. But before, I want to talk to you about a day commentating mm. at the tour. But then you mentioned ID. So as you mentioned, the, the days of blokes with the, the material hats on and hair flowing at the back, now you've got eight members of the team. They've all got their sunglasses on. They've all got their helmets on. They've got the same color socks on. 
when pushes so if I commentate the footy or the cricket, typically I'm in venue. You're, you're in venue, but you are at the hands of the production team because so Matt's not watching the race live. You're watching a monitor, and we'll get to where where that is. So then, how do you go about? making sure you've got your ID right for the last 1,500 metres, which is the, the the whole key to what you're doing when it comes down to a sprint. Yeah. We talked about at the start that four and a half hours of nothing and then two minutes of madness. How do you make sure you get the two minutes of madness right? Yeah, that's the most nerve-wracking part. Well, yeah. And the highest adrenaline and the most rewarding is getting that part right. They're still charging. Uran is coming and he's grimacing, but Fulsang is smiling. Has he smiled too soon? They're on him. And Warren Bargiel is still in with the chance. Here comes Rigoberto Uran. Bardet is coming. It's Uran. It's Bargiel. Bargiel is coming. Photo finish. They're calling photo finish. So you know everybody's role. So it's a sprint stage, for example. Um, And let's look, you know, Mark Cavendish, when he was at his best, you know what everybody's role is. So you know when there's a breakaway. up The Manx Missile. The Manx Missile, 34 stage wins at the Tour. When there's a breakaway, there's going to be somebody from his team that's going to be contributing to the chasing. So we know it's not Mark Cavendish because he's the protected rider. We know it's not Mark Renshaw because he's the last guy to do the lead out for him. And we know it's not um, Tony Martin because he's the second last guy to do the lead out. So who else is on the team? Uh, Well, they've got Tony Martin... We mentioned Bernie Eisel, Mick Rogers is on the team as well. He's going to be saving himself for the mountains. They've got um, Marcel Seberg, maybe. He's the most. So you've eliminated five or six that it's not. So then you get it down to one or two. That's but going the, to be but on there the could be eight different teams in the sprint at this stage. Yeah, there is. So we worked out who's doing the chasing early. But then when it comes down to the last two kilometers, you know everyone's role. So I know who the last lead out oh. guy is, who the second last lead out guy is. And you you can tell me the team that is on the front, how many riders there are, and I would back myself 90% of the time to get it right to tell you who is in what position without looking at the screen. In the same way that when you follow the commentator on the footy, you know who's at full back and who's at full forward. Gotcha. I never thought of it like that. So it's an, it looks like an individual sport, but it's a team sport and everybody has got a specific role. And, you know, you know when it's a sprint stage that it's not going to be the guy that's key for the mountains that's going to be anywhere near it at the front. It's only going to be the guys that are repetitively up towards the front. Are you looking for anything like a – like say in – I will actually watch a lot of F1. Mm. So in the onboard camera, they'll have a – just the tiny top of it, they'll have a, a fluorescent green sticker or a fluorescent orange sticker to differentiate between – Verstappen and Perez or Hamilton and Russell. Is there anything you can physically look at on a bike? Yeah. So shoe colour. Shoe colour. Some of them have got different shoe colours. The the frame colour on their glasses is often different. You know everybody's heights. That's why having the height on that is really important. Yes. Because, you know, I know that, uh, you know, Mark Cavendish, for example, is around about sort of like 170 centimetres tall. But, you know, he's got a couple of guys traditionally previously on his team who are around the 185 mark. So it's really easy to tell the difference between them just based on their height. Um, you not They've started taking it so the team leader often has a different coloured bike. Like everybody will have a blue bike and the team leader is black or something along those lines. So you're looking for... People have different sock heights. How high their socks are oh is often a key identifier. There's some, like a Matthew Vanderpool, for example, very rarely races with gloves. In fact, he never races with gloves. Whereas Jasper Philipson, who's now on his team, he mentioned before, he always sprints with gloves on. So you can see those little bits and pieces to be able to identify who is who. And, My and- favourite conditions to commentate yeah. when it's pouring rain and 
you know you can't see their numbers. So you've got to identify them without seeing what their number is on their back. And you enjoy the, the, the sheer that. challenge that. So, yeah. so all the work that goes into it, and as I said, we'll get to a day at the tour. Tell me, because everyone that's ever commentated on anything has done this numerous times, some of us more than others, tell me about one where you've stuffed something up and you've gone home and thought, oh, my God. Well, the first Tour de France that I commentated on, I was so nervous and Fabian Cancellara was in the yellow jersey. Is this when you're the main guy or the no, fluffer? Fluffer. Right. First year fluffer. <laughs> apprentice. <laughs> and Cancellara? Yeah. So and, and I completely butchered the pronunciation of his name. Oh, okay. I was just super, super nervous. And I was like the different, I was a different guy for the third year in a row. Like I had a Kiwi guy, another Aussie guy, then me. And I felt like everybody was like, get rid of this guy. doesn't know what he's talking about. How can he not get Cancellara's name right? And I was just so bloody nervous. And that's why I completely stuffed that up. And we make mistakes with pronunciation, you know, occasionally. And even in, you, you stumble on your words in English as well. Of course well. you do. Of course you do. Yeah. And when you're in the heat of the moment, you're live there for six hours. Um, but anyway, I, I lost a lot of sleep over that because how do you get it wrong with the yellow jersey? Lost a lot of sleep. But we spoke about Paul Sean before. Paul Sean greatest guy of all time. So all the other English broadcasters, they're saying, this guy's got to go. They've emailed ASO, this guy's got oh, to so go. Oh, so they blew up. Yeah, they really blew up. Ooh. They they blew up because, and there was you know one guy from the UK in particular who wanted my job. So he was really keen to try and get rid of me. And then I've walked into the compound and there's a bunch of them all standing around and Paul Sherman was with them. And Paul walked away from that group and grabbed me and said, here's the mistake that's been made. Here is the correct pronunciation. Uh, yeah, I know I got it wrong. I'd st- you know, I was really nervous. And he just said, say it, Cancellara. Say it, Cancellara. Great. So I've gone off. I've gotten prepared. And I'm sitting there. I'm about five minutes before I go on air. And Paul walks in to the commentary box with Phil and a few other people there with him as well. And he didn't want to embarrass me, but he wanted to make sure I had it right. And he tapped me on the shoulder. He goes, what's that Swiss guy's name again? Huh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's Cancellara. Thanks, mate. So he made it look like he was asking me. What a legend. But he was protecting me. What a legend. Yeah. I will never, ever forget that. And he, he died in December of 2018 and he is one of the greatest human beings I've ever come across. And at the time when he died and I thought, oh, man, I've lost one of the most important people in my working life. And he sent the, set the benchmark and the role model for me to follow and how I want to be with others. And I thought I was special in the way he treated me. But then you saw the outpouring from so many people that had stories just like mine and more significant than mine mm. about that guy. And yeah, he is an amazing human being. That, that sticks with me the most. Not so much from the mistake I made, but by how somebody responded to it who could potentially have me take his job. Well, it's sliding doors, isn't it? Yep. It's like sliding doors. If, if, if you get overturned in the meeting, then you're not... Like, Correct. Who knows what's happening? So Okay, so... yeah. The tour this year, um, you know, post-COVID, you'll have um, events that you don't go to and you'll be here commentating European events like you're talking about mm. now in the middle of the night. So the Tour de France, I'm always fascinated by this. And from a broadcast uh, perspective, what, what time does a stage normally start? It normally starts around about midday. Midday. So the, the objective is, you think about it from a timing perspective, the objective is to have the stage finished and all the presentations wrapped up and the broadcast end at six o'clock. Go, to, go the to the news. Go to the news. Okay. So okay. how long the stage is determines what time it oh, starts because so we're always aiming there. for the same finish time. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So if it's a short stage, it might start at one o'clock. If it's a long stage, it might start at 11 o'clock. And so are you 
physically based. It must be near the end of the stage, so you can whip out to interview people. We're on the finish line. On the finish line. So the, we're, we're in these portable trucks. How do you get there? Drive. So we're in the car. We're driving ourselves there. Huh. Um, so I'll take you through it. So from from the morning, get up. I try and go for a run every now and then, have some breakfast. Normally leave the hotel at about 8.30, 9 o'clock. Like to get to the media compound two hours before the stage starts. To, to do any prep or just so you can relax? And... Both. Okay. Do prep, relax, make sure I've got a bit of food, those sorts of things. Uh, and we've got no ad breaks either. So you want to make sure you're pretty close to the bathroom. We'll know where the bathroom is. Oh, so you're, on the, you're in the whole time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I used to commentate on my own, I used to I did the Tour of Spain on my own start to finish. The whole, the whole, the whole stage? Thing, my strategy would be to go into the commentary box dehydrated. <laughs> so you didn't <laughs> so need it. So, Are we halfway through? Yeah, correct. So anyway, back to the day. So we get to the media compound. It's about two hours before the stage starts. Get myself organised in the commentary box. Check all the various news feeds to see what other information that you can find out that you didn't get the night before. And then the commentary tribune, it's a mobile truck that goes to the stage finish every day. Down the bottom is all the TV commentators. Upstairs, it's double-decker truck. Upstairs is all the radio. How many different broadcasts would there be, you reckon, the tour? Uh, Roughly. 20 to 25 different nationalities. Okay. Wow. So then I walk along the commentary tribune and I talk to the Norwegians, I talk to the Danes, I talk to the Belgians, I talk to the French guys. I, I talk to all the different nationalities about any news for their, the riders from uh, those countries. Like an info, and then you tell them about the Aussies, presumably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's normally how I couch it. I go in saying, oh, did you hear that Michael Matthews has done, or Ben O'Connor has done this, or you know, I give <laughs> them some information about an Aussie to start that conversation, and then they give me some information about what's happened with one of the riders of their nation. Uh, so that gives you, again, ad value to the pictures, stuff that you can't find necessarily on the internet. And then, you know, I like to be settled and have nothing more to do half an hour before we start. In addition to the race preparation, we've got the touristic guide, which is one of the biggest parts of the oh, job. Oh, I love this bit. This is when you start talking about a cathedral from 752. Correct. So we've got a book that has been put together by a group of people that spent three months going around the course of the Tour de France. Uh, and, and so people, the, people have to understand... The tour, it's a different route. So it could be the only time a stage ever goes through this village. That's right. So you want to get it right. Yeah, that's right. It is. This one dates back to the 15th century. As you can see, you can go there, stay overnight, enjoy the restaurant as well. Ancient Longduk country house. And the name of the chateau, the Chateau de Camels, was the name of the family, in fact, that originally built this back in the 15th century. So I go through that historical guide and I go through this at night and in the morning and I have a highlighter on all the key points about the Eglise Saint-Martin or the you know cathedral in Foix, whatever it may be, and I've got the history of that. And the book is written in the way that at 144 kilometres to go, there is this you know war memorial cemetery from the Canadians that fought in the Second World War. There's this many people buried there. It was a, a and result. You, and is it is it coordinated through the broadcast that you know that the director is going to show that? Yeah, I'm pretty confident the director is going to show it. So he's he's operating off the same book. Yeah, he's using the same book, and the di- director is in there looking at the artistic stuff, and he's got a former writer telling him when to, there's no, we can't look at the chateau now, we've got to get to the race. Okay, okay. So there's a there's a creative director. And, and a race director. A race director. And they work Fascinating. together. Fascinating. Yeah. So I go through that book and make any additional notes and look for anything maybe to link in back to something that's happening in Australia. We've even got a tennis court in the backyard, a couple of tennis courts there for those that come and visit and stay overnight. The court's back at home at McLeod Tennis Club and I'm dying to know the result from my team on Saturday in the pennant against St Mary's of Greensboro. 
Well, if you weren't there, they probably did pretty well. Fair chance the team was strengthened by my absence. Lillian Kalmajan still off the front on his own. The gap now. How do you deliver it with the confidence and sound that you know exactly what you're talking about, as about opposed to a bloke that read it last night when he was having his toasted sandwich before he went to bed? Because I've also read it in the week before the Tour de France starts. So the first thing I get printed out before I get on the aeroplane is that book. And it's about 400 pages. And I take that with me on the plane and I make notes on it through the plane. And then I read it again the night before and I read it in the morning. Because that's stuff that I don't know yeah. instinctively. Whereas, but you need to deliver it like you do know it. Yeah, that's right. Whereas the stuff here about the race, I know that stuff. Uh -huh. And that's just, that's a plan. But that's a backup. That's my airbag. Whereas with the churches and the chateaus and the region and the wine from the region or the cheese from the region or the local delicacy, I don't know that stuff instinctively. So I've got a lot more work to do to sound as if I do know what I'm talking about. Um, okay, so we're, we're, so then, we're ready for the start of the stage start. now. Stage starts, you're on air, say, 11.30. It's 10 minutes before the neutral. Then in the neutral zone, flag drops at about 12 o'clock. You go through to stage finishes at 5.30. Then there's the presentations. We're off air at 6 o'clock local time. Then we come and have a bit of a debrief. We do a few social media posts for SBS, have a brief chat about what the plan is for the next day, jump in the car at around 7 o'clock. And then we're driving to the town or near the town where the finish is for the next stage. Which could be a couple hundred kilometres away. Often it's 200 to 300 kilometres so we try and we work out what time roughly we're going to get there. Will we get there before 10 o'clock? If so, we'll grab something from the hotel for dinner or we'll grab something from a restaurant within that town. If it's going to be much later than that, and it often is when you're in the mountains because it's much slower driving, we get something from a servo along the way. You know, we get a baguette from the service station for or a sandwich. For 21 days? Yeah, for 21 days. Uh, yeah. And, and, and then you get to the hotel, 10.30, 11 o'clock, that makes it around sort of, what's that make it? Seven o'clock in, in Australia. So I'll jump on, have a chat, FaceTime to my wife and kids before they go to school and then try and get to sleep around 11, 30, 12 o'clock. And then what's the key to broadcasting the Tour de France in the five hours? You need one key ingredient, passion. And you've got to demonstrate your passion. Ultimately, I'm a fan of the sport. The people watching it are fans of the sport. And one of Richie Benno's rules was there's no team called them or us. So you're not barracking for a particular rider, but you're barracking for the event. You're barracking for the sport, essentially. And I wrote down when I left having a real job to just commentate, the nerd in me wrote a business plan. And I wrote a mission statement to infect as many people as possible with the bike bug. Hmm. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to impart my love for cycling because my life is infinitely better because of cycling. I've had the chance to explore the world. I've gone from riding my bike a kilometre away from mum and dad's place to going to the other side of the globe. So my life is better because of cycling and I want to infect as many people as possible with the bike bug. So that's what I'm trying to achieve in commentary. Back to Matt momentarily. I mentioned in the intro, episode 31 of the show, featured legendary, legendary cycling commentator Phil Liggett. Phil is one of the most entertaining guests the show has been privileged to feature. And Phil, well, Phil tells a fair old story. And so I moved on from the zookeeping after hitting an elephant on my bike. I rode to work every day, but I didn't know that before the public allowed in, uh, it probably still applies in most zoos, many of the animals they let out. 
Uh, they don't let the lions out or the predators, but, I mean, the elephant's a fantastic weeding machine. You take him round the back and he'll shovel all those nettles in one hit. And so round the back of the tea hut yep. was the Indian elephant with his keeper, uh, and the keepers are in love with their animals, by the way. Of course. They, they, they're, they're, they're kids. And the elephant was working away around the back of the tea hut. I zoomed round on my bike, hit the back of the elephant, fell off. And the, the keeper, I remember, he pulled the ear of the elephant down and said, look at this silly sod. And the elephant just trumpeted. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Anyway, my bike was bent. That's Phil Liggett on episode 31 of the show. Let's get back to Matt. One thing I meant to ask you about when we were talking about your fantastic cycling career, <laughs> you, you had a nasty accident. Yeah, I did. What happened? Uh, it was just on a training ride. I had a few crashes. I'd you know, broken my knee and a few other bits and pieces when I was racing. But I was going down a road that I've been down countless times in my life. Whereabouts? At Alma Road, Kangaroo Ground, Panton Hill, that sort of area. So out in the northern suburbs, um, past the northern suburbs. So it was Alma Road, Panton Hill. And just riding down with my mates on a Saturday morning, chatting away. I did not even see it. A dog came out and hit my front wheel. A dog? A dog ran through. Didn't, but you do see occasionally on the tour. You do see them on the tour. And I like to say that taking a dog to a bike race is like taking a shark to a swimming event. <laughs> okay, I like it. Keep it on the leash. <laughs> so I didn't even see it. It took my front wheel out and my fork snapped. I didn't get my, couldn't even get my hands out. I just went face first. Uh, I ended up with 65 stitches in my face. I lost one of my teeth and I fractured a bone in my neck. It was fortunately a really small fracture. Ooh. I fractured a bone called the occipital condyle, which is the bone that connects your spine to your skull. I think it was the same one that Christopher Reeves fractured. Oh. So I was really, really lucky. And I've got no memory from the moment that I crashed, but my mates tell me that I was, you know, saying, just fix my bike up and we'll ride home. So I was clearly, you know, not all with it. My next memory is waking up in the Royal Melbourne Hospital, you know, a day or two later. Um, I was in hospital for around about sort of 10 or 12 days, I think. My wife was actually at that time on a holiday with, with her mum in Morocco. So she had to come home for me to have somebody to look after me when I got home. I was then in a neck brace for three and a half months, four months. Um, but then within three weeks of being home out of hospital, I was on the bike on the home trainer. I just wanted to ride again. And then the first ride that I did back out on the road, I went and rode down that same road. And then as we were about to turn left onto Elmer Road, a car came past us with a dog barking out oh, the back. Oh. And all my mates who were with me that day were with me on the day that I crashed that were just silent. Oh. And I mean, and I you know, rode back down that road and been going there ever since. So of all the races you've commentated on, Maddie, there must have been some serious incidents, like mm. bike racing. I, I don't know. I should know if anyone's passed away on anything yep. you've been commentating on. Um, how do you handle the disaster situation when you're live on air? Like you're a little bit in your sport a slave to the director mm. as to what he does and doesn't show. How does that situation unveil itself in the box? It's really hard. So in 2011, I was at the start of this stage, last stage of Paranese. It was pouring down rain. And I was looking for someone to get under shelter. And I got under shelter with this Belgian guy, uh, Welter Whelan, who rode for the Leopold Trek team, which was the team of the Schleck brothers. And that was in March. And then in May, stage three, and he was a great guy. Chatting to him, fantastic guy. Then stage three of the Tour of Italy in May, he crashed and it was a massive crash. You're commentating? I'm commentating. Huge crash. He died. And 
luckily I was only commentating for the Australian audience. Um, but like, this is someone that, you know, you don't know that they're dead at that point. What information are you being given that you might not be broadcasting? Um, or none, not, you're flying no, blind. Flying blind. And you're hearing race radio. So race radio is, there's a car that goes behind the peloton, they communicate to the team and it will be, you know, in Italy, it's obviously mainly in Italian with some French and it's the Tour de France, it's in French, which, you know, fortunately I can understand and they'll be talking about this rider has crashed and calling the team car over. Um, so you, I was lucky that I wasn't commentating for a Belgian, you know, Belgian yeah. boy, so his family's not watching my commentary. But you don't know how serious it is and you just, you know, hope that he's okay and then get on with the race. Then you find out later. But it was one incident that was I found really hard to commentate on was a stage of the Tour de France in 2017. And it was one of the first major stages in the mountains and Richie Port was a chance to win the Tour that year. And they're you know, tearing down this descent and it was a left-hand turn. Oh. And Richie's had a massive crash. Huge crash. Huge crash. And I'm commentating for the World Feed. So I know that more of my commentary is going to Australia. So so anyone that's listening now, so Maddie's anyone that's listening in English to the Tour de France at that particular moment, they're listening to you. Yeah. Whether in New Zealand, yep. they're in America, Ireland, Australia, yeah, wherever. Yep. Exactly. But the only thing that's going through my mind when I see Richie crash is his mum and dad are watching. Mm. He's had a crash, crash and Port is down. So too is Dan Martin. Richie Port is on the deck. Dan Martin is with him. It's a horrible crash for Richie Port. And it's the end of his Tour de France. The most important thing now is the well-being of Richie Port. So... That's a huge crash too. It was a massive crash and he did not move. You know, he, he did not move. So... You talked before about, you know, enter, entertainment of the sport. Mm. You know, cycling sometimes in the highlights packages can be guilty of crash porn, putting too many crashes in because that draws people in. But when it's somebody's family member and they're on the side of the road, they're the only people I'm thinking about at that time. I couldn't care less if it's the right call for everybody else. I'm just trying to do the right call for that person's family members. The dream of the Tour de France can wait another 12 months. Heartbreaking images from the Tour de France. It was always a risk on this descent. And, and how much has it changed? So, you know, in cricket, people talk about Richie Benno and the fact that he said very little, but what he said was pointed. I can't do Richie Benno in a big bash game because the game has changed and people want more sizzle. Like you look at the IPL, it's 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 like wrestling. So... How, how do you balance up calmness and description to a bit of sizzle, like some entertainment? Because now I can't just watch the Tour de France on a Thursday night on SBS. I can watch 19 things on Netflix or on whatever else it is. It's a competitive market. Yeah, it is. So do you have to do, do you have to bring more entertainment than those that followed your path before you did or no? No, you've still got to do your own thing, but – Brevity is really important as well and choosing when to not say anything. And that when they're going through up Alpe d'Huez and it's a huge crowd and they're going through Dutch Corner, silence is the best and mm. the ambient noise because then the audience at home can feel the energy that's coming from the crowd that's on the side of the road. So having the confidence to be silent, to not say anything, is often the best commentary. And you think of the great moments in commentary in Australian sport – and many of them have just been a couple of words. Richie Benno, the you know the ball of the century with Shane Warne, he's done it. 
And he's done it. That's all he said. He's done it. Mm. Three words. Uh, when Kathy Freeman won the 400 metres in Sydney, it wasn't the call from Bruce that captured my imagination. Raylene. It was, you know, Bruce said, you know, what a champion, what a legend, what a champion. And Raylene said, what a relief. Yeah. And you could feel that. What a legend. What a champion. What a relief. When Sydney won the um, grand final, how many hours of commentary in a grand final? Mm, two and a half. Two and a half. And Steve Quartermain says, Leo Barry, you start. Yeah. They're the key moments and they're the ones that are remembered. So it's about getting that right balance, being quiet at the right times and providing the entertainment and building the athletes up. It's a, it's a complex caper you do. When you're, when you're sitting in there and, you know, there's world feeds and there's technical and how often does stuff go wrong? How often does you're not able to hear your fellow commentator or you get static in your ears or you get nothing in your ears or you don't know if your mic's on. Like, how, how often does that happen in a typical – because I would imagine piggybacking off all these different feeds on the other side of the world, this stuff must happen a bit. Yeah, it does. It happens quite regularly. And the weather has a big impact on cycling as well. Yeah. So they have five helicopters when three of them have got cameras in them and two of them have got re- – you know, uh, trying to relay that image. There's another aeroplane that's flying above them to bounce that image around the world. There's five motorbikes out on the road as well. So there's one at the front of the peloton, one at the back of the peloton, one going for the breakaway, mm-hmm. another one in case the peloton splits up as well. And then once you get into the final few kilometres, there's fixed cameras also. So there's a lot of stuff that can break down. And sometimes Mother Nature just wins. There was a stage that I can remember vividly doing into Andorra in the Volta de España in 2008, and it was pouring down. And for the last 60 kilometres, there was no images coming in from the race. No pictures? No pictures. It was just a picture (laughs) of the finish line. So it was the camera that was at the finish line. So I was calling for 60 kilometres worth, and it was more than it would have been about. Are you by yourself still? I'm by myself. So it was around two hours. (laughs) Is there a timing monitor? There was a timing monitor, but they're all in a bunch. And there's just a cup. there's a text update every now and then of what's happening within the bunch. So it was a one-person podcast about that stage. <laughs> and then the, the first I saw the riders was when they came around the corner and they were sprinting for the finish. And I remember it vividly. Alessandro Balan won the stage. And then later that year, he won the world title. <laughs> and it was in the pouring rain. There was another one where... At the Tour of Spain, after the stage had finished, I'd do this 26-minute highlights package that would be commentated live as it was going out on the satellite. And I was commentating and then the screen went blank. And I'm hitting the talk back and, you know, I didn't, I don't speak Spanish and they didn't speak much English. I've hit, I'm talk, 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 hit the talk back button. This is Matthew, no pictures, no pictures. Talk, talk, talk. This is Matthew, no <laughs> images, no pictures. Nothing, no response. Like the director's not even hearing me. So I pull my phone out and I talk, 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 hit the mute button. I ring the guy from the race organisation, Jorge, who went to university in Miami, speaks perfect English. Jorge, this is Matthew, no <laughs> pictures, no images. It felt like it was about an hour, but it was probably about a three-minute block here. He opens up the door to the commentary, he goes, no pictures. <laughs> so what had happened is one of the guys working on the truck started packing up and pulled the plug out. Oh. But the images were still going out and so was my audio. And they popped the plug in. There was three kilometres to go and I called the end of the stage. 
<laughs> you've seen a lot of cyclists by evidence by these notes. Who's the best? Who's the best you've seen? He's riding right now. Tadej Pogacar. Is it? He is unbelievable. That's the P-O-G-A-C-A-R that I yeah. read about with the yeah. inflection above it. Yeah, right. correct. So he's from Slovenia. Right. He's, and what is it about him? Uh, he can win on cobbled stone races. He won the Tour of Flanders this year, which is a race that's normally won by guys that are, in cycling terms, big. You know, they're close to six foot. They weigh around about 72 kilos. He's this little climber guy. He weighs in the low 60s is about 172 centimetres or something. He, just, he should be bounced off the cobblestones. He won that race. In the stage of the Tour de France last year that went across the cobblestones, all the big climbers were panicking. They were losing sleep over that stage. He relished it. Hmm. He's going over the cobblestones like the big flatland specialist. He can hang out with the sprinters. He hangs out with the climbers. He beats them in the time trial. And he does it all with a smile on his face. His greatest weakness is he doesn't know where the reins are. Because he's so damn good that he cannot get the reins on. There's a famous story about him when he was a junior. He was around about 15 years of age and he was in this under-19s race. And it was a circuit race in Slovenia. And the national coach came to watch and the peloton goes past. It's like on a five or six or seven kilometer circuit. The peloton goes past and then, you know, maybe 10 minutes later, this little kid goes past on his own. And the national coach says, oh, this is ridiculous. You should not expose a kid to race at this level. It's going to demoralize them. You should pull them out of the race and have them race in their own age division. Yeah. He's about to catch them because oh, he's lapping them. He's lapping them. He's lapping them. It was wow. like a 5K circuit or something or other. Right, well. Uh, he's just off the charts. And he's and when he, when he doesn't win, he, he finishes second or third with grace. His worst ever result in a tour – and his whole career was his first one. It was at the Tour Down Under in 2019. He finished 13th. That's his worst result. Huh. And then to summarize what he's like as a personality, he left Adelaide. He came down to Geelong for the Kettle Evans Great Ocean Road Race. And the whole team is ready to leave. They're catching the plane on the Monday after that race on the Sunday. And his passport has gone missing. And everybody's in a panic except for him. <laughs> but it's Australia Day on the Monday. So it's a public holiday. Everything's closed. He says, oh, well. I left Tuesday. <laughs> Stress-free. Stress-free. Manny, you've obviously achieved a hell of a lot from a bloke that was going to win the Tour de France but now <laughs> commentates those that do win the Tour de France. We always finish this way, mate. Um, for those that are wanting to achieve success in their world, we have a lot of kids listening to this, which is really cool. What advice would you give them from the journey that you've been on and what you've learned along the way? And as a father, it's a slightly more weighty question for yeah. those that have children to answer. Two key elements to it. The first one is there is more than one way to skin a cat. Okay, so I started with the dream of trying to win the Tour de France and then it reduced to trying to win a stage. Then it reduced to trying to ride it. I didn't get there. But I worked out that you set a target and you can find another way to get there. And the outcome might not be the same as the initial goal that you set, but you're still chasing a dream that is fulfilling your passion. So chase your passion and chase that dream. And it might just be that you have to cut it a different way. What was your favorite sport? Cricket. What do you commentate on? Cricket. Well, Adrian Anderson, when he was growing up, I imagine footy was his favorite sport. Mm. He wasn't that good at it, but he became a lawyer and he had one of the senior jobs at the AFL. Yep. Gillian McLaughlin's probably the same. Yeah, absolutely. So there's more than one way to skin a cat. So that's number one. Number two, and this is a piece of advice that I got from my coach when I was a kid. When I didn't get selected for that national team after I thought I was a chance, 
He said, life is 10% what happens to you, 90% what you do about it. <laughs> Stop sulking about not getting selected. What are you going to do about it? Your destiny is in your own hands. And if you can acknowledge your shortcomings and your mistakes, you're going to be a whole lot better for it because that way you can improve. You can't get the right answer if you're not asking the right question. So life is 10% what happens to you, 90% what you do about it. Maddie, it's been a treat to have a chat with you. As I said, you can hear Maddie turn on SBS tonight whenever you're listening to this and the Tour de France will be on. Um, and when you took over from Phil, it's like I remember thinking, wow, this bloke, he's got massive shoes to fill. And now when I turn on Tour de France, I expect your voice, which is great credit to you. Thank and you. And the person that takes over from you, I think, wow, this bloke's got big shoes to fill when he's taking over from Maddie, which is... Um, to be the voice of such a fantastic sport and such a fantastic event, it's a credit to everything you've done, mate. I'll be watching it on SBS and may you continue to dominate and maybe Carlton will win a premiership in your lifetime, but I think you've got more chance of winning the Tour de France. But anyway, Matthew, nice to have you on the Howie Games. Thanks, Howie. No sorry, sorry to all the Carlton supporters out there, including my wife. Just a good story of having a real crack, that one, for mine. Thanks to Matty, the star, for taking time out of his study to come on the podcast. Three straight weeks of commentary. That is a huge effort. Trust me, that is a huge effort. Thanks also to Jordan Byrne and the crew at SBS for making this happen. Legends. Until next week with Stuart Broad, MBE. <laughs> Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try